1: Professor Lisa Kirschenbaum uh, from Westchester University, uh, who is a social historian and a very fine-grained social historian of the, uh, of the Soviet period, and has since broadened out to uh, look at international communism as well, uh, specializing in things like childhood and gender, he had an early book on uh, Soviet childhoods in the uh, 1917 to 1932, uh, a second book, which, uh, which was a, uh, an award winner, on today's topic, The Siege of Leningrad, and uh, in 2015 published a a book on uh, the international communism and the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Kirstenbaum is uh, here today under the uh, auspices, as Scott said, of the War and Society program, but specifically a a lecture series that's been going on all year uh, on the impacts of war. Now, War and Society and Culture is a new program put together by... uh, Professor Mary Louise Roberts and sitting there, and uh, John Hall, who's sitting in the General Staff Lounge at the uh, uh, Joint Chief Staff of the uh, Pentagon right now, but uh, uh, is in touch in absentia. And it's a new program that uh, wants to teach questions of military and society in uh, in mutual contextualization. And uh, I can't think of a better lecture topic uh, for this series, uh, a more Use the word I hate impactful <laughs> legacy of the war than uh, than the siege of Leningrad. If you don't know about the siege, shame on you. Uh, say, uh, it's, uh, and it's a it's a chapter in a in a generally neglected part of World War II, uh, and uh, uh, it helps to drive home uh, the strength and the uh, the power of post-Soviet memories of this conflict. And so, rather than uh, witter on about mm-hmm. the impact of uh, Lisa's work, I'll turn the floor over to you
0: still really personally powerful in post-Soviet Russia, and present in a way that the memory of World War II simply isn't, I think, in the United States. Um, And even as the veterans are are dying, uh, the war memory is not. And I think this is the, the kind of amazing sort of relatively new kind of ritual around Victory Day, which is the Immortal Regiment, uh, which is now, happens in cities all across Russia. It actually happens in cities where there are uh, Soviet emigres, uh, Russian emigres outside of of Russia. And this is in Moscow, where perhaps a million people come out. And I think you can kind of tell from the, the picture, people are carrying photographs of family members who either participated in the war or died in the war. And This is obviously a a very kind of personal register of of memory, but it's also uh, a very public and and perhaps political one. It started out the Immortal Regiment as kind of a grassroots uh, sort of effort, but has also been adopted and uh, encouraged by uh, the post-Soviet state. So this is the kind of context in which I want to think about the blockade of Leningrad and think in particular about the persistence of a certain kind of story about uh, the blockade in particular, and more generally about what's still called the Great Patriotic War, the Great Fatherland War, which, like the American World War II, starts in 1941, right? (laughs) And and, and ends in 1945. We edit out uh, 1939. the blockade of Leningrad is, of course, one of the most dramatic uh, sort of stories of, of the war, also one of the best documented. It was a story that was constructed and propagated by the Soviet state while it was still going on. But it's a story that you hear in very similar kinds of terms uh, if you do an interview with blockade survivors even today. So it's a, it's a very powerful and persistent memory. And I want to think about why and how that memory has remained uh, so powerful, how it's managed to outlast the state that, in fact, helped create it. Uh, one way to think about what I'm kind of calling the myth of the siege, and I'm not doing that in a way to emphasize its, its lack of truthfulness, uh, but instead uh, its kind of shared narrative quality. So we might think about that as something analogous to uh, the myth of the London Blitz. I don't know if people have ever been to the Imperial War Museum's walk-through London Blitz. Right, it kind of understates the the trauma and the horror and the panic of the Blitz, and it kind of domesticates it. We see Londoners drinking tea and singing as the bombs fall. This is obviously not a true picture of the Blitz, but it's one uh, that's that's. Londoners-like, um, and I think that Leningrad, and maybe because it's also an urban war, has something kind of similar. In Leningrad, uh, as compared to London, the trauma was much more uh, acute, and so the distortions were maybe more galling and, and more numerous, but it's a similar kind of uh, storytelling that has remained made popular. And my intention here is not to call out that storytelling as false, but to think about it as a kind of historical event in its own right. How does this storytelling happen? So I want to look at the meanings that Leningraders attributed to their wartime experiences, how they narrated and, therefore, remembered the blockade, uh, which can help us to see these heroic stories not only or mainly as something foisted on Soviet people by the state, but as something that uh, they turned to on their own and that they used in their own kind of often very highly adapted ways. Uh, So I want to think about how the impacts uh, of the war can be thought of as at once kind of local, uh, personal, and, and also national and political. So, first, I'm going to just provide a really brief kind of overview of the trauma of the blockade and then kind of turn to what I'm calling sort of official commemorations of the blockade, recognizing that official is kind of in scare quotes because uh, those official commemorations were often constructed by Leningraders, people who were living through the blockade themselves the most famous example being the poet Olga Wolz, who was the voice of Radio Leningrad during the blockade, wrote her best-known poetry about the blockade, but also lived through it, or lost a husband to starvation during the blockade. So she's an official narrator, but she's also someone who suffers through the blockade with Leningraders. And then I want to turn to an extremely interesting and well-documented example of how Leningraders could turn those official narratives into something with Uh, kind of personal use and and so I'm looking at a project that was undertaken by a group of librarians at the state public library um, who worked during the blockade itself uh, to commemorate the siege and whose personal stories became entwined with that um, sort of larger public area. So many of you I'm sure are are familiar with the blockade so I just want to take a couple of minutes to kind of outline sort of the traumatic impacts of, of the blockade. Leningrad's wartime experience was extraordinary, it was tragic, and it was specifically urban, which I think is important in thinking uh, about the the impacts for individuals and localities and communities. Um, It was mostly women and children and old people in the city uh, because men had either been evacuated with the war industry or were in the armed forces. Um, And so it's a place where the war heroes are sometimes women and children, which is which is kind of an interesting problem. The city was almost immediately threatened by the German uh, invasion of June of 1941. Leningraders didn't know that until late August when suddenly newspapers and the radio and broadsides around the city warned them of an immediate threat of attack by German fascist forces. Um, almost immediately, the city is... Uh, Well, the first really large scale bombing comes in early September of of, uh, 1941. And so the first images of the kind of city reshaped by war are precisely this city uh, trying to protect itself from air attack. And so these images, people know Petersburg or Leningrad. They know that's uh, St. Isaac's Cathedral, a very famous landmark in the city, but now kind of this weird juxtaposition of the barrage balloons, which are meant to try and interdict or interfere with. aerial attacks, right, but are right in the central square, right in, in the middle of, of St. Petersburg. And then there's this really intensive bombing campaign uh, in early in early September. So then you get images of actual war damage. And again, this is damage that's very close to home. And you can see a lot of the people who are, who are suffering from this are, are women, so not sort of typical um, combatants. Um, eventually, Uh, And I'm not going to give you the military history here, right? but increased Soviet resistance slows the German advance. The Germans decide that they're going to rely, instead of uh, taking the city by force, they're going to rely on siege and starvation. And they move the troops from from Leningrad to uh, the battle from Moscow. When the blockade closed around Leningrad in September 1991, um, about two and a half million civilians of a pre-war population of over three million were still in the city, so not very many people uh, got out. And again, most of those people were sort of uh, disproportionately women, children, and the elderly. Efforts to evacuate children had gone disastrously uh, in the summer. They were inadvertently directed into the path of the advancing Germans, So. Parents were understandably uh, a little reluctant to send their kids out, and then by early September they couldn't. Adults often thought it seemed reasonable to remain in the city. After all, pre-war propaganda had told them the war will be short, the war will be you know, fought on the enemy's territory, um, and that the city was safe from aerial attack. None of these things, of course, ended up being true. Some people really thought it was a badge of patriotic honor to stay in the city, and then, of course, a lot of people just couldn't get out because the big wigs did. Right? People with some kind of position, factory directors, party leaders, got their friends and family out, and a lot of people had no opportunity to leave. Almost immediately after the blockade closed, doctors in Leningrad's uh, hospital start seeing the first cases of what they call alimentary dystrophy, what's sometimes called in the West hunger disease, what we would call more colloquially starvation. Um, and the first cases are among the most vulnerable populations, which is child refugees from Leningrad suburbs, people who came into the city fleeing the German advance. Um, But city officials didn't really take many steps to prevent famine at that point. In fact, they were under orders to continue sending food out of the city. They were working extra shifts to supply arms and ammunition uh, to Moscow. Um, There was rationing, but it was possible to buy food off ration coupons. So by the time the blockade Closes, the city just has a month's supply uh, of of flour, meat, and fat. So they're, they're really unprepared uh, for this. Um, and starvation then becomes the central trauma uh, of the blockade. And that's where it's really different from what's going on anyplace else, and certainly what's going on in London. Uh, during uh, the late fall and throughout the winter of 1941-42, uh, the population faced conditions that just kind of defy imagination. Um, Temperatures in January 1942 reached 40 degrees below zero, which you and Wisconsin may know is where centigrade and Fahrenheit converge. Um, And so the streets are frozen. Uh, There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's no public transportation. Uh, Between uh, the end of November and the end of December uh, 1941, the daily bread ration falls to uh, 125 grams for dependents and children, uh, which is a little less than four and a half ounces, so it's just a a few uh, bites of of, of bread. And then one of the kinds of uh, emblems of the siege that that people often talk about and that often show up in uh, accounts is is people pulling uh, corpses to the cemetery on children's sleds. Again, one of these sort of uncanny, weird kind of juxtapositions in a city at war that a child's sled becomes a way to transport corpses. Um, And so it's, it's really the this, this starvation that we have to think about in terms of, I think, the, the personal impact. Um, if you read diaries from this period, people are just fixated uh, on food, on finding it, preparing it, eating it, documenting it, dreaming about it. Um, starvation is, is not just not enough food, but it's kind of a strange uh, diet. So they, they talk about um, not just their food intake, but their kind of ingeniousness in turning things that were not edible in, into food. Um, So so one scientist, she talks about how we've learned to make donuts out of mustard, soup out of yeast, hamburgers out of horseradish, and gelatin out of joiner's glue. Um, This aching need for food destroys family relationships in many cases. It more quickly uh, destroys any kind of solidarity beyond uh, the circle of the family, a diarist's note, uh, real and imagined efforts of bakery workers to cheat them of part of their ration, uh, the overall unfairness of the rationing system, uh, as well as their own attempts to take advantage of connections, to acquire ration cards illegally, to trade on the black market, even to steal in order to increase their own allotment. Rumors of cannibalism circulated widely, um, and the police arrested maybe 1,500 Leningraders for cannibalism, which was called banditism. Um, so brothers looking for a way to describe this situation uh, to outsiders uh, often described it as disrupting social roles and identities, and especially uh, embodied gender identities that the starvation created a body devoid of visible markers of age and gender. So a mathematics professor, for example, remembered the look and sound of the hungry, the yellow face, vacant gaze, the noticeable loss of voice. It was impossible to judge by the voice, whether it was a man or a woman, a tremulous voice, the voice of someone who had lost age and sex. Uh, by, 19, uh, by, by the spring of 1942, the situation is improving uh, somewhat. They open uh, what the, the Soviet media calls the road of life across Lake Ladoga, which Leningraders called the road of death because it's still uh, under uh, artillery attack. Um, some people managed to get out, but for the thousands who remained behind, increased rations were often too little, too late. Uh, mortality rates peaked uh, in January and February uh, of 1942. And deaths attributed to prolonged semi starvation continued into the spring and summer. Um, By March, the worst period of the siege was over, and so a lot of accounts of the blockade often stopped there. That's often where people stopped keeping diaries. Um, The city government undertook a massive spring cleanup uh, so that uh, for about 12 days in March and April, as many as 300,000 Leningraders, mostly, again, women, uh, come out, uh, find the strength to break up snow and ice with shovels and picks and haul away Uh, The detritus of the winter, um, snow, ice, excrement, corpses, and dump it into the still frozen canals. Rations increased, queues shortened, um, and in the sort of official narrative of the siege, spring was rebirth and everything was great. But of course, in individual accounts, that's not always the case. Along with uh, recovery came, for many people, deepening depression uh, as the horrors of winter became clearer, kind of in the bright light of spring. as hunger intensified, when food became more uh, available, but but hardly hardly plentiful, the blockade lasted two more winters. It was finally uh, lifted in January of 1942, but those two winters uh, don't repeat this this starvation uh, of of the first winter, partly because so many people died and then people were uh, evacuated. Um, it was opened up in 1943 and then and then lifted in, in 1944. Um, the human loss- losses were staggering. Conservative post-war estimates put the number of dead at 670,000, uh, which is undoubtedly too low. Um, more recently, historians suggest a figure of about 1 million deaths due to starvation as a reasonable approximation, which in one winter of the war, which is double the number of Americans who died throughout the entire war in all its theaters. So it gives you some sense of the kind of magnitude of what the city so while the city is going through this, people are simultaneously creating a story about it. Uh, and a story, this will not surprise you, in which the despair and desperation of Leningraders did not show up very much in the press. Um, instead, the Soviet media emphasized heroic defense of Leningrad uh, and often distorted the realities of the besieged city, uh, notably downplaying or completely ignoring the extent of starvation or Famine was never mentioned in the Soviet press while it was going on. So what are they showing instead? Uh, Again, these kinds of eerie images of the city uh, under bombardment. This is an Arab warning, and again, anybody who knows uh, Leningrad or St. Petersburg immediately recognizes this as the city, but with this weird kind of war juxtaposition, or showing bomb damage in the city. Um, And I really like this image because it really makes us think about how propaganda is not something that was added to the war. It was part of the actual experience of the war. Somebody who lived in Leningrad would see uh, the bombed out building, but then also see the poster calling for death to the child killers. Um, And so the the story of the war is part of the experience of the war. The propaganda can't really be separated from what people are seeing and and doing. Um, And this this idea of, of recognizing themselves uh, in, in the propaganda, I think, becomes an important one. Uh, in commemorating the present, uh, the state-sponsored ex- exhibitions, um, which were, again, often created by, by Leningraders, uh, kind of merged the personal uh, and the public and pictured the war as a formative event in the life of the nation, but also in the lives of individuals, so that these official states-sponsored Exhibitions and there's a museum of the blockade before the blockade is lifted, right? Um, Feature things like family photographs, diaries, letters, commendations, blood-soaked Komsomol cards that documented individual lives uh, and the national war uh, effort. There's also an emphasis on the kind of local city identity. So again, we have posters that say defend Lenin city, and you can see the very for, again, for anybody who knows the city, the very obvious, the Admiralty Spire, St. Isaac's. We know that that's, that that's Leningrad. Or in one calling on um, young people to uh, fight for, for the motherland, we see the, the famous, um, not very Soviet, statue of, of Peter the Great, a, a kind of uh, Leningrad icon. Official wartime commemoration played on this sense uh, of the epic nature of the city's present as a means of endowing the most mundane details of everyday life uh, with national significance. Bill Goltz, uh, who, as I said, was one of the best-known voices of Radio Leningrad during the war, told her listeners as early as the winter of 1941 that their daily concerns were the raw material of history. And maybe, comrades, she said, we will see our daily bread ration, this poor little piece of black bread, behind the glass in some kind of museum. Uh, And in 1943, with the siege not yet broken, an exhibition dedicated to the heroic defense of Leningrad did, in fact, display the 125-gram bread ration of November uh, 1941. It was part uh, of a larger exhibit that really focused on Soviet military hardware and captured German tanks and artillery, but it also had uh, a lot of uh, features that emphasized daily life in the city, like the burned out tram, uh, like the bread, and those were uh, the things that got attention, they weren't. The focus of this it's a huge exhibit, 20,000 square meter exhibition space organized by the military authorities to celebrate Soviet might, but it includes uh, these kind of everyday items and those are the things that, that people really responded powerfully to. Um, it was turned into a museum after the war, which was shut down in 1953, uh, and then reestablished in 1989, and yes, still featuring uh, the, blood, the bread ration, um, and it's still juxtaposing the kind of artifacts of battle and of everyday life as a means of writing the tragic tale of the city into this grand narrative of, of Soviet military victory. Uh, This is really clear in Oberberg-Goltz's memoir, which she started right after uh, Stalin died in Daytime Stars, which has recently been published English translation by the University of Wisconsin Press. I'm really excited about that. It's an amazing uh, memoir. And in it, she thinks a lot about the ways in which uh, this blurred boundary between the personal and the public, the intimate and the national, the everyday and the heroic, was a general feature of life during the siege. So she says, I've read many blockade diaries written by the dark of homemade oil lamps in gloves with hands almost too weak to support a pen, more often a pencil, the ink, the ink froze up. Tragedy breathes from the many, many pages of these diaries where a person writes with total candor about his or her own relatives and friends, everyday cares, efforts, sorrow, joys, and as a rule, his or her own, deeply personal, is at the same time more universal or more general. The national becomes deeply personal, indeed humane. History suddenly speaks with a living, simple human voice. Um, So it's really this this kind of emphasis on the ways in which the the public is personal, and the personal is public as a result of the way in which the war has played out. Um, What she obscures here is the degree to which the simple human voice of history spoke in spaces like the Siege Museum that were controlled uh, by, by the state, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this wasn't also also heartfelt uh, at the same time. Leningraders, of course, could easily compare official representations in the press or in museums to what they saw around them. They knew what was fake and what wasn't, um, and they likely omitted the. They likely noted the omission of gruesome details. Most obviously, the extent of starvation most sensationally, cannibalism, but also other sorts of crimes and less than ideal behavior on on the heroic city. Um, Nonetheless, whatever the distortions or omissions, the myth of the hero city uh, proffered by the official media, and in large part, as I said, produced by Leningraders themselves, provided a compelling template for understanding and remembering and narrating personal experiences. The socialist realist convention of eclipsing the often wretched present uh, with the fairy tale future fostered representations of blockaded Leningrad that sometimes flew in the face of reality, but also provided (coughs) the powerful means of imagining and maybe beginning to accomplish real recovery. Olga Friedenberg, who is a classicist scholar and a cousin of Boris Pasternak, summed up the paradox. No one believed the radio. It had been long assumed that it spoke for someone, but no one believed it or relied on the truth of what was heard. All the same, one listened and believed. (laughs) Um, So my aim here is less to debunk the myth or to demythologize the siege than to delineate how these these public narratives and images of the blockade became part of Leningrader's personal experiences. So I want to turn now to um, Leningrader's kind of own responses to this um, propaganda. How did official commemorations Uh, Of the siege? How did history become life? Um, So while the state, oh my goodness, okay, while the state uh, used evocations of personal trauma as a means of establishing the emotional authenticity of the national struggle, individuals wove state sponsored images and narratives into their quote unquote personal stories. And this allowed them to invest their wartime experiences with historic significance. This just wasn't a meaningless sacrifice. This was historically important. Uh, And the stories lasted and are still told, suggesting that they work on the level of both political and and human needs. Um, And this moment of recognition of the self and the propaganda, I think, is, is one of the ways that this works. In the Book of the Blockade, which was published in 1982, Um, and was one of the kind of first really sort of open accounts of some of the horrors of the blockade, although it was still published, you know, under Brezhnev. Um, So we can think about the political uses of talking about horrors. Um, But one of the stories that they tell is that they find the woman who's in this photograph, which is is an off Often reproduced photograph. It was taken in 1942 uh, in the spring sunshine. It's meant to be a vision of recovery, although you can see, I think you can, you can see how kind of, um, kind of horribly emaciated the, the kids are in, in, the, in this picture. Um, so they found the woman uh, who, who's pictured here, Veronica Apakova. What's her name? I'm getting it wrong. Um, yeah, Veronica Apachala, um, who has the picture in a family album in, 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 in Leningrad. Um, and she tells the story. She doesn't remember where the photograph was taken, or what they were doing, or what the day was. But she, what she remembers is seeing the photograph at the museum and recognizing herself that that was her uh, in the picture. Um, so the, the editors of the book of the blockade say that blockade photograph, known throughout the world, is a family memento. Um, for them, the, the powerful memory is recognizing themselves, um, despite the fact that the photograph, she says, is terrible and frightening and always disturbing and brings one to tears. She kept it in the family album. Um, and so this, this idea that somehow even in this image, which is really meant as a kind of whitewash, right? things are getting better in print in Leningrad. Look at the sunshine. Uh, she sees it as, as part of her own story. Um, A wartime memory project that was undertaken by a small, what they call, brigade of workers at the state public library, um, which is here's the the facade of the state public library during (laughs) during the blockade, um, is a particularly, I think, illuminating and really well-documented example of how the state's propaganda could become a feature of individual memory. Uh, It was initiated um, neither by the state nor the party, but by the librarians themselves. Um, and for them, it was uh, meaningful work in the besieged city. In a paper presented at the library in 1945, the collections director, Gerakai Kikana, uh, argued that for those who lived through the blockade in Leningrad, who along with everyone defended our city, each document, each scrap of paper will be a memory, will make it possible to realize the whole past. So workers at the, at the public library began collecting the published artifacts of the siege almost immediately after the blockade closed. Uh, as air raid and artillery attacks disrupted the work of the library's branches closing reading rooms forcing the evacuation of rare volumes damaging buildings two librarians um, developed the idea of collecting everything that was published in in the besieged city the idea was to preserve the publications that constituted and therefore would help to reconjure the material and intellectual milieu of the city during the blockade a year later the collection became the responsibility of Karatigana, whose job uh, before the war had included the management of the library's St. Petersburg Leningrad collection. So she was sort of the natural person to take this over. <coughs> uh, and she shifted the emphasis um, to compile an exhaustive catalog, not of material published in Leningrad, but of material published about Leningrad, regardless of the place of publication. Uh, and she deemed most interesting those objects in the collection and. When I went through this, it was still in the original bins and boxes that the librarians had put it in, up in an attic on the Fontanka branch of the library. Um, The most interesting things, she said, were objects that captured the look and feel of the city at a particular moment. She emphasized the importance of things like leaflets, uh, ration coupons, posters, slogans, uh, postcards, they had huge postcard collections, labels, tickets. Um, all of those things as kind of reconstructing the material experience and memory of the blockade. Uh, Under her leadership, the Siege Collections Brigade became one of the library's uh, most active and and visible groups uh, during during the war. Uh, This small collective undertook what Karatigana characterized as a task unprecedented for the public library of cataloging a wide variety of materials quickly, uh, and came to a- occupy during the war an absolutely exceptional position in the library. The uh, British war correspondent Alexander Wirth, who had actually been born in pre-revolutionary St. Petersburg, was one of the only, or maybe the only, Western journalist who visited Leningrad it was still under blockade, and he visited the library. Uh, and he said that there, this, this collective was buzzing with activity. He described that he found 15 old ladies, most of whom looked like rather decrepit old gentlewomen who had seen better times, up to their ears in cuttings and posters and bills, and so absorbed in their work that they scarcely seemed aware of our existence any more than of the shelling that was continuing outside. The library's director, you will be happy to know, took strong exception towards characterization of qualified librarians <laughs> as old ladies. Um, uh, but they weren't that young, but they weren't that old. either. Um, for its members, the brigade became uh, what they called an oasis uh, that provided both refuge and and support during the blockade. They created a physical space in the library, borrowing stuff from all the different reading rooms and branches that were closed, with rugs and vases, and made it really homey, and also hung um, some of their collection and propaganda posters around. Um, so it really stood out from the rest of the building. It was both homey and kind of uh, displaying their their collection. In an account of this brigade that Karatigana put together in 1964, she noted that our work supported many of us and helped many of us to bear all the severity of the blockade and the sorrow of loss. And a large number of the librarians uh, that worked on it, I think it was uh, I think it was about 17 women and two men, um, a large number of them lost spouses or, or children um, during the blockade. But they still they still came to work. Um, the work of collecting and cataloging everything from newspaper clippings to postcards became a means for them of, of coping with catastrophe. Uh, as Karatigana noted, it was easier to live having become, have, it was easier to live having before you a clear aim, devoting all your strength to work, and living with uh, a harmonious, united collective. Uh, an architect who spent the famine winter of 1941-42 preparing blueprints, uh, the city's historical building said almost exactly the same thing when he talked to Alexander Ward, saying that that work is what saved him. Uh, the sense of the overwhelming importance of the work was the best medicine that could be given us during the famine. Ward helped individuals to cope with the trauma uh, by helping to restore a sense of internal control and by connecting individuals to both co-workers and, and a larger purpose. For Count the power of propaganda to stimulate um, the personal memory of survivors rather than its ability to provide an exact representation of the blockaded city is why it should have been preserved, to, to kind of stir up and help survivors remember. She noted, I don't know how it is with others, but for me, seeing the matchbook covers of that time, there rises up before my eyes the long, dark, sleepless nights of the winter of 41, 42, without light and heat, interrupted by air raid sirens and the explosion of bombs. The, the matchbook covers that she's saying counters all this up have the most simple kind of propaganda. They just have slogans like "All strength to the front" or "Defend heroic Leningrad." Um, so they're they're not really that evocative, but but they are for her. Um, so while the siege museum was collecting diaries, photographs, and personal artifacts to endow its largely military story uh, with a human dimension, Katarzyna suggested that even the state's seemingly most banal propaganda uh, could could. Uh, touch living memory for, for survivors. For Keratigana, officially sponsored representations of the siege expressed the personal experiences of Leningraders. Um, she argued that the endlessly reproduced photographs from the blockade, some of which I've, I've already shown you, uh, the, the what she called the characteristic faces of the malnourished or the ubiquitous image of the corpse being transported on a child's sled, spoke better than any words of the unprecedented sufferings of Leningraders, Um, although she also granted that some of the poetry of the blockade, especially Bergoltz and and Beraimber, also was very evocative for survivors. Less literally, but not less fully than Veronica Apachova, Karatigana recognized her personal story in the public, state-sponsored pictures and words that everyone saw and knew, um, and everybody knew to be propaganda. But but it also it also spoke to her, and she recognized it. When it came time for the librarians to commemorate their own efforts to commemorate the siege, which, of course, they did, they, they made an album called Leningrad in Blockade. Um, and they constructed this out of news photos and the words of Leningrad's siege posts, uh, primarily Bear Boltz and, and Ingbert. Uh, they mentioned neither Lenin, Stalin, nor the party, um, and they focused on the destruction of the city and the shared suffering of Leningraders. They began with their Goltz's affirmation that, now I will not be torn away from you by one unprecedented battle, one unique fake, we are all marked, we are Leningraders. <laughs> Suggesting that the siege divided the lives of all who lived through it into before and after and that all who lived through the siege were now Leningraders, Bergoltz's poem represents the blockade as a shared collective struggle and also in, in very kind of typical traumatic language as a break in people's life. There's a before the blockade and, and there's an after. Uh, as all Leningraders suffered a unique fate, the poet could speak for all of them and the librarians could structure their own memories around the poet's words. Bergoltz's verses set an appropriate tone for an album that commemorated not only the siege but also the efforts of a small group of library workers to survive, by making the public and mythic narratives of the siege a part of their everyday lives and everyday work. So this, I, I think, these kinds of, of, of stories of how those, uh, how those public stories became personal um, gives us a sense, I think, and a framework for thinking about how myth and memory can't really be separated, how they entwine uh, and influence each other, how the, the personal uh, is implicated in the political and vice versa. The state tried to inspire, sacrifice, and mobilize the population by displaying personal artifacts in the context of exhibitions to, designed to emphasize the historic dimensions of the war. runners often recognized themselves uh, in state representations, even if they also knew that those representations weren't exactly believable. They believed, even if they didn't believe. Um, doing so could provide a means of coping with personal suffering by endowing it with meaning. The librarians found a heroic collective context for their suffering in the newspaper clippings, posters, postcards, and poetry that they so carefully cataloged. Of course, the meanings that Leningrad's, Leningraders found in state images may not have always been those intended by the state. Uh, Apakova's photograph operated in museums and in official histories as an emblem of renewal in the city in the spring following the first starvation winter. For her, though, it evoked uh, the horrors of the winters preceding the photograph and the difficulty uh, of recovery. Still, the state-sponsored image provided the starting point for her own story and actually its most dramatic moment, this, this moment of recognition. None of which is to deny, of course, the lasting damage uh, that is done uh, by the blockade or the ways in which the official memory uh, obscures it. Um, But I think this gives us a way of thinking about why that narrative has proved so powerful uh, and and persistent, so that in in Petersburg today, um, this is a wonderful series of photographs um, that uh, started in in Petersburg but have have, uh, spread out to to other World War II sites, the wonderful series of uh, occupied uh, Paris. Um, But myth and, and memory continue to be kind of woven together. Uh, in, in Petersburg today, um, heroic Leningrad continues uh, to exert in post-Soviet Russia um, political power but also uh, the personal power of myth. And I think that helps us to understand why it has been so kind of difficult to kind of de-ideologize the memory of the war, why it is so still, so politically potent um, in post-Soviet Russia. Thanks.